It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 221, King Croesus and the Vanity of Man. Some years after Cyrus came to the throne of Media and Persia, he found himself in a conflict with his nearby neighbor to the west. Here's the deal. If you find a map out there of the Neo-Babylonian Empire, the map for simplicity would include Persia and Mede territory. But Babylon never actually controlled the Medes or the Persians. They were allies. Above the Babylonian territory and stretching all the way to modern central Turkey was the Median Empire, and now the empire of the Medes and the Persians, and now just for simplicity under Cyrus, it's the Persians. The reach and distance of their territory was significant, and at this stage the Babylonians have virtually fallen asleep politically to the world around them. Cyrus has consolidated his power base and and restructured his empire. His army was reorganized with the center of his army, a division of 10,000 elite warriors called the Immortals. He was prepared for conquest, and most indications showed he was eyeing the territory on the western part of Turkey, modern Turkey. So the Persians have a tremendous amount of territory, but they lack great wealth. If Cyrus wants a true empire with all the normal advantages of an empire, he would require some areas with great wealth. Babylon, his neighbor to the south, was getting weaker, but this would require a full-scale war that could potentially last five to ten years. To get Egypt, he'd have to go through Babylon. The Lydians to the west of him were incredibly wealthy and powerful, but small in size by his standards. So let's discuss the Lydians. First, the Lydians didn't always include the the coastal region. So they were kind of a a sliver of territory just after the coastal region of western Turkey, modern western Turkey, and and towards the center part of Turkey. Now eventually they're going to include the coastal cities, which will make them very wealthy. The Lydian territory would eventually have Sardis as its capital and dominate the political landscape of, of central to western Turkey. It would become extremely wealthy with gold deposits in its land, trade dominance connecting east and west in its territory. And the Lydians had controlled their territory for hundreds of years when a, when a new dynasty comes to power. And this is how Herodotus actually starts his history, speaking of the Lydians and its last dynasty. The final dynasty was called the Myrmnads, and its first king was Gyges. Some call them... Some call him Gugu, and there's also references in history connecting Gyges to Gog from the book of Ezekiel. And this is the Gog from the Gog and Magog in the future war that's spoken of in Ezekiel. Gyges was the bodyguard of his king, Marsalus. And after seeing, just go with it, this is Herodotus, seeing the queen, so he's the bodyguard of Marsalus, who's the king, and due to some situation, he actually sees the queen naked. And through some strange event, 
The queen learns of this. She calls him in privately, this is Gyges, and told her it was no small thing that he saw her naked. And because of the shame she incurred, one of two things must happen. You must die or kill my husband and take the throne. Well, Gyges kills the king and takes the throne. Crazy story. And that's how Herodotus starts his histories. I'm telling you, Herodotus was a storyteller. Gyges kills his king and starts a new dynasty, the last of the Lydian dynasty, the most powerful at its zenith, but also at its fall. After Gyges retains the throne, a civil war breaks out, and the opposing faction said to him that uh, the opposing faction said to him that if the oracle at Delphi confirmed the right of Gyges to rule, they would not fight against him. And after enormous gifts of gold giving to the oracle at Delphi, a favorable prophecy was actually received by Gyges. And Gyges proceeded to secure the throne and made Lydia a formidable country, relocating its capital to Sart- Sardis, a hilltop fortress, fortifying it incredibly, making it one of the most formidable cities in the world, forcing any assailant to virtually scale the mountaintop to enter its gates. The next king is Ardes, followed by Sadates and Alates. And Alates will end up at a war with the Persians, fighting Xaraxares. And when Xaraxares attacked Lydia, the kings of Cilicia and Babylon intervened and negotiated a peace, whereby the river Hales was established as the Medes' frontier with Lydia. And that's, that's kind of what Herodotus says about that. But there's something super interesting about this war uh, that breaks out. Um, so the war continues for some time, and each side winning numerous battles. In the fifth year of the war, the war continued. And then the final battle of the whole war is actually termed the Battle of the Eclipse. It took place on, um, in 585 B.C., and the battle was abruptly ended when a total solar eclipse blanketed this region of the world. Interesting, eh? Like, very spiritual and superstitious people at the time, they stopped fighting. And instead of continuing the fighting, a peace ensued, and both sides retired, leaving leaving the Haley's River as their border. So when we were in Oregon for the Great American Eclipse, I kept recalling this story and considered a historical eclipse episode, but we didn't do it. A special top eclipses in world history. Can you imagine, though, that the timing that they're in a battle and an eclipse happens? So day becomes night. What would that be like? This is crazy. Elides turned his army and started to take some of the Mediterranean ports instead, making peace with media. And this conquest brought great wealth into Sardis. And his successor, Croesus, would complete the conquest of the port cities and bring incredible wealth to Lydia. And then an expression came to be known in this region of the world, to be rich as Croesus, referring to this next king. He would be spoken of highly, almost like Cyrus throughout history, except the way it ends. Like it, During his early lifetime, um, early kingship, he is so famous in his land. And Croesus would have, uh, would have had an incredible source of pride where he was one of the happiest men in the world. We would actually hear a story about it later. 
Croesus was potentially even the richest man in the world. He was one of the most powerful, with one of the greatest fortress cities in the world, the greatest cavalry force, one of the richest men in the world. And he self-declared himself one of the happiest. And when war breaks out between Lydia and Persia now, the Greek and those of the European continent do not realize that if Lydia loses, the independent Greeks would soon become neighbors to a militant Persian empire. Before the Lydian war breaks out between Lydia and Persia, Croesus just continues to grow in fame. And there's some dispute if he was the first, but many attribute Croesus to the first issuance of the first true gold coins in world history, a standardized purity for general circulation. It was this use of gold and silver coinage It's attributed to the Lydian civilization. It was pretty crude. Uh, They were made of electrum, a naturally occurring pale yellow alloy of gold and silver. The composition of the first coins was similar to alluvial deposits found in the silt of one of the rivers going right through Sardis. So let's say he had great marketing too. He was a billionaire. He was famous in his day. He had a great reputation. He was loved throughout his lands. But this is where the story starts to take a turn. There's a, this is what Herodotus writes about his encounter with the Greek sage named Solon. And according to Herodotus, Croesus encountered the Greek sage Solon and showed him his enormous wealth. Croesus, secure in his own wealth and happiness, asked Solon who the happiest man in the world was and was disappointed by Solon's response that there had been men happier than Croesus. Tellus, who died fighting for his country, and the brothers Calebus and Beton, who died peacefully in their sleep after their mother prayed for their perfect happiness because they had demonstrated filial piety by drawing her in a festival in an ox cart themselves. Solon goes on to explain that Croesus cannot be the happiest man because of the fickleness of fortune means that the happiness of a man's life cannot be judged until after his death. So that gives a little foreshadowing of what's going to happen to Croesus. So Croesus becomes a representative of a successful yet very prideful man who finds himself destroyed by his own success and obsession with self. His strength, his wealth, his strength of arms, his elite cavalry, let's add his faith in his gods and the oracle at Delphi. Pride comes before a fall. Croesus has a long history with the oracle at Delphi which we'll see in existence even into the time of Paul the Apostle. The oracle is basically a prophetic oracle from the gods of Greece. And more to follow in this oracle because its significance in world history and the hopeless demonic aspect of it, as well as what happens when someone has a gift of prophecy, yet they use it for demonic purposes. But that we'll save for another day. Croesus would send extremely expensive gifts to the oracle and receive prophetic words in return. And when the threats from Persia started to grow, Croesus, in his concern about war with Persia, sent for word from the oracle. In typical, ambiguous fashion, he was sent the following word. If Croesus attacked the Persians, he would destroy a great empire. Further, the oracle declared he should partner with the powerful Greek state. He should choose Sparta and partner with them for war. Further, he formed an alliance with Babylon and Egypt for war. 
His alliance did not guarantee their troops on his front lines, but support from their spheres of influence. And maybe if he was attacked, they would come in and help him. No troops from Sparta, Greece, or Babylon were present when he crossed the Halys River to invade Persia. Relying on the word of prophecy from Delphi, Croesus crossed the Halys River to wage war with Cyrus. The two armies met at Pateria. The slaughter was great but inconclusive, and Croesus withdrew to his own territory. Due to the time of year, Croesus withdrew his forces and disbanded his army because it was winter. I mean, who wages war in winter? And he told his soldiers and mercenaries to return in the spring for another campaign. Cyrus didn't dismiss his soldiers. Instead, he proceeded to cross the river and invade Lydia. Croesus was shocked by the bold move of Cyrus, who risked a campaign in the winter. Croesus was floored by Cyrus's bold move, yet he still had great hope in his local soldiers and his cavalry. In fact, he had the greatest cavalry in the world. Isn't that what great wealth buys you? Think about King Solomon. Great weapons of warfare in their age, cavalry was the best money could buy. And relying on his famed cavalry, he still fought a battle. He still knew he could fight a battle and save himself. And too late to recover his dismissed troops, or at least his mercenaries, he still had his cavalry and kind of local militias. He deployed his reserves and his cavalry to destroy Cyrus outside of Sardis. Cyrus, taking the advice of another who suggested that camels hated even the smell of horses, that he should deploy them in battle. Cyrus did just this, taking pack camels and deploying them in the front line. And upon the smell of them, the actual cavalry of Lydia ran from the field and Cyrus routed the Lydian army. Croesus withdrew inside his capital and his siege continued into the winter months. Okay, so Croesus found himself with his back against, or let's say within his own walls. Now relying on his great fortifications, Croesus figured he could rely on winter as well and the weather to save him, and Cyrus would have to go home before the end of the siege. In the meantime, he called for help from Sparta in Egypt. His messengers arrived by boat in Sparta. Spartan troops were prepared to go to Sardis. Back in Sardis, Cyrus's soldiers watched a soldier from Sardis crawled down a very steep part of the wall that they thought was impossible to go up. They saw this soldier go down the wall, grab his helmet, and go back up the wall. This was an unprotected part of the wall, which they realized was actually scalable. Cyrus ordered hundreds of his soldiers to mountain climb the wall, breaking into the fortress of Sardis. Upon its capture, Cyrus assumed the Lydian land, lands for his own, and became master of all of modern Turkey. The next boat from Lydia arrived only to tell Sparta that Croesus had already been defeated and Cyrus had conquered his empire. The vague oracle from Delphi was right. It became clear that the powerful empire destroyed by the war was Croesus' own. There is mixed accounts of what happened to Croesus after this, but Herodotus tells an interesting story. Croesus was sitting with Cyrus at his table after the capture of Sardis. 
Cyrus asked Croesus how he felt about Sardis being sacked and his treasure being stolen by his soldiers. Croesus's answer was classic. It's your treasure that's being stolen, and your soldiers are sacking your city. It appears Cyrus halted the looting of the city from this moment forward and halting the destruction of Sardis. Cyrus would in turn make Sardis his centerpiece in the region. The result of the Lydian campaign was that Persia now stretched from Iran to modern Turkey. Its borders to the south, the defunct Babylonians and Egyptians further down, and to the west, a very agitated and watchful group of city-states who never had any business unifying until a giant empire appeared at its doorstep. The result would be the massively huge historical event called the Persian Wars, only a generation from now. Isn't it such a vanity of man story? Croesus relied on prophecy from his gods, his wealth, his wisdom, his army, his cavalry, his fortifications to no avail. Despite being the richest man in the world and potentially the most powerful, he met his end in only a matter of days. We end this episode with uh, some references to works of literature throughout history that seem to point back to Croesus and how he's just that symbol of human vanity. Isaac Watts had a poem called False Greatness. He said these words, Thus meekled still with wealth and state, Croesus himself can never know. His true dimensions and his weight are far inferior to their show. Other literary examples are Croesus and Fate, a short story by Leo Tolstoy. And that's the retelling of the account of Croesus as told by Herodotus and Plutarch. And Croesus, King of Lydia, a tragedy in five parts by Alfred Bate Richards, which was published in 1845. And there's a reason why these writers and poets and storytellers use Croesus as such an example. I mean, he's such a picture of the vanity of man. When we do things our own way, we rely on our own strengths, our own advantages, and we do not trust in God. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.